Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller in today for Charlie Sykes. And before I get to a guest that is really, really going to be wonderful, um, I just want to remind everybody, if you haven't checked out Not My Party on Snapchat uh, or on YouTube now for the olds, we've put it on YouTube. Um, uh, It's coming out every Thursday. Please send it to the teens in your life. Um, We're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, It's about a little four-minute uh, take on the news of the day, a little kind of Tim Miller, Mickey Rooney uh, shtick, modernized with you know gifs and jokes. So um, I do hope you enjoy that. Uh, but let's get to our guest today. Um, uh, she's a nocturnal creature, so we're coming out a few hours later than usual. That's a, a very old friend of mine who I'm sure you know from Twitter.com, uh, from the various profiles of all her work, making Mayor Pete famous. Uh, it is the one and only Liz Smith. Liz, how are you doing, girl? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for accommodating my hours. Is Are, are, are we talking about Mickey Rooney or Andy Rooney? <laughs> Andy, I think. And wasn't it Andy that did like the little one-minute commentaries at the end of 60 Minutes? I'm really out. Of, we're kind of too young for this. I was trying to you know, make this relevant for the boomers in the audience so they can uh, correct me if Mickey, that was not accurate. Mickey Rooney was a sprite in um, you know, Midsummer Night Stream, I think, you know? <laughs> But anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't have my Roonies confused. And and you are, there's a big bulwark cat versus dog uh, debate. And so, you know, just to kind of set set the table here. You're you're a you're a avid cat partisan and have your cats probably crawling over the computer right now. Yeah, well, I, I tried to kick them out. But yes, you know, I, I used to be a dog person, but I like cats. They're they're incredibly warm, loyal, and loyal only to you. And that's what I appreciate generally in people as well. Um, so for the people who don't know Liz, which would be surprising given your um, celebrity, um, uh, I, I didn't Google you, so I'm doing your, I'm doing your bio from background. But um, Liz and I met uh, back in 2012 uh, when I was the rapid response director for the RNC, which was a fancy title for just being mean to President Obama every day. Uh, And Liz was the rapid response director for President Obama's campaign. And so we were, you know, supposedly supposed to be rivals. um, But, you know, we met one evening in DC and kind of you know, had I, I feel like we had a little sort of charming, um, not quite romantic exchange, given my given my homosexuality, but you know, sort of a a little connection, and and so we ended up kind of having a performative frenemyship throughout the 2012 campaign, and uh, and you can correct me if you disagree with that assessment, Liz. And then Liz went on to do Terry McAuliffe in the RGA and a bunch of New York City races, and then famously Mayor Pete, which we'll get to in a second. Is that is that a good uh, good summary of your your career as a Democratic hatchet woman? Well, <laughs> I prefer to call myself a brand builder. Brand builder, sorry. You were a brand terror downer in your early days, and you've, you've evolved into a brand builder. But, well, you, you call me a frenemy, but I think I remember BuzzFeed at the time in 2012 just calling you my foil. Um, oh. Yeah, but it, it was a good – and it was performative because – even though we were on opposite sides of the political aisle, I do feel like we were, you know, still interpersonally decent um, and friends and could have fun and, you know, joke offline. And, you know, here we are today. Um, uh, even after I sort of crushed you on that race. But, yeah. <laughs> 
it does feel like another century, right? I mean, like you cannot imagine, and for good reason, you know, like uh, I guess what would what would be the equivalent? You know, Jason Jason Miller and like Jen Saki, you know, kind of doing a friendly banter, banter buddy shtick anymore. Um, and um, and that was like fairly common back then. I mean, I don't think I think that obviously there were some hard feelings on both sides of, of political campaigns because they get serious, but like. that is pretty much dead. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. And certainly on on the presidential level, but it feels like down ballot too. Like the, the divide between the two parties and the, um, just the hatred, like the true vitriol that exists. Um, I feel like it, it speaks somewhat to the polarization maybe of politics, but also just the style, right? You know, social media, Twitter, that was like 2012 was the first year that you really had that. And I do feel like Twitter has made the political dialogue so much worse, so much more personal um, and, and incentivize so much like vitriol that it's impossible to have sort of an offline friendship and, or an offline relationship with anyone. It really was the first big Twitter thing. Like we were kind of putting on it. I mean, and, and uh, look, we just, I, I genuinely wanted Mitt Romney to win. You genuinely wanted Obama to win. So it wasn't performative in that sense, but like we were kind of putting on a show for people like fighting on the internet, right? Like inside the beltway people in, in a way that was new, right? Like this was not a thing in the 08 campaign. Um, and, and so, and it was a little bit more controlled, right? Like the, you know, the other thing, in addition to sort of the degradation of the Twitter commentary is, you know, that Trump brought along with him both, you know, kind of the bots and, you know, kind of, the, uh, you know, the more widespread adoption of, you know, people who are professional trolls literally online uh, as part of it. And then also, you know, Trump himself, like whereas the differences over Obama and Romney were policy oriented you know it's more of a values difference between donald trump and his opponents so so those those are some other differences right but like that was really a fresh thing right i mean there was that time in tw- when i went down to troll you at the uh at the democratic convention where i stood outside your um your little press con- or was at the republican convention i stood outside your press conference and was like handing out mean quotes about debbie wasserman schultz um and and like the internet was was watching us as if it was kind of like a you know, like we were the we were the stated combatants. Yeah, I was that the night that Chris Christie gave the keynote <laughs> and only spoke about himself and never once mentioned Mitt Romney. <laughs> it was I should have given the keynote because I was killing it on the internet with my anti Deborah Wasserman Schultz, you know, handouts that I was that I was passing out, and then then Chris Christie stole my thunder. Um, okay, so we go back a while. I, I want I want to move back. I want to move on to Mayor Pete. Um, which I, I think, and, and I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, so I, I just, I just want to go candid about the beginning of the mayor Pete race. So you you are, you know, uh, I don't need to fluff you up or whatever, but a rising star in democratic political circles. Seems like you could have worked for a lot of presidential candidates, big presidential race coming up. Um, and, and very early you kind of aligned yourself with mayor Pete. Um, he was coming through San Francisco on a donor, trip you weren't coming which i was disappointed in. i wanted to go out and get drinks um but you know you sort of gave me the info to go to the event it was like a luncheon or something and i went to this event and saw him talk and i i, I gotta tell you he didn't send a thrill up my leg chris matthews obama style i didn't really get it he seemed kind of like a dorky you know earnest liberal guy 
Um, I didn't dislike him, right? I, I just didn't. I didn't understand how he would distinguish himself in a field of you know a lot of big name A list Democrats. Um, and 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 I found myself wondering, like, why is Liz? Why is Liz doing this? <laughs> like, can she not get another job? You know, is everything okay? And so, tell me, like, what was it that you saw that I didn't see at the start? And why did you? Why did you stick with it? Well, I don't think you're alone in that assessment. The number of people who asked me, you know, what the fuck are you doing? I think it, I, I think it literally took. Um, like two years into me working for Pete, you know, probably six months into the campaign for even members of my close family to know his first name, you know, his <laughs> last name. So you are not alone in that assessment of it. Um, but I, I had the completely different reaction to him from you. Um, I didn't have the thrill up my leg, uh, but I did have that goosebumps moment, right? A moment that I just, I've never had before in politics and haven't had since. Um, and oddly, it's because of the, some of the things that you mentioned, right? That he was sort of nerdy. He was sort of earnest. He was sort of this quiet guy. Um, and But I remember... You know, I, I, I meet him for the first time and we sit down for this round of national interviews. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of presidential candidates, a lot of senators, a lot of governors who are so seasoned, you know, they the second a New York Times reporter or a Wall Street Journal reporter enters the room, you know, a wall goes up either that or they piss their pants, you know. But Pete was so poised. And not only that, he just had this like quiet intensity to him that I'd never really seen in anyone. And I just never seen someone who as green as he was in politics, like be so sure of who he was and what he knew. And and um, I just remember him in these interviews, just making this, unrelenting eye contact, you know, with the reporters that almost made them uncomfortable because they were not expecting it. Um, and at some point I just realized that there was just something really compelling and different about him. And what you might have seen as boring, as quiet, as earnest, I saw as a complete antidote um, to not only to Trump, right. Who had just, you know, when I first met him, it was, that was early 2017 when he was running for DNC chair. But so you had Trump out there, you know, being carnival barker, all that. But you also had this strain of Democrats, the Michael Avenatti's or, you know, every U.S. senator who wanted to run for president who thought that the path to victory was going on MSNBC and hyperventilating and calling you know everyone a Russian plant um, and <laughs> He wasn't that way. He was thoughtful. He was serious. And I just, you, you know, you you can just sometimes tell the things that can cut through. And he wasn't going to be the loudest in the voice, but loudest room, loudest voice in the room. Sorry. But 
I knew that somehow he could cut through and that there was something to be said for him being serious, quiet, intense, earnest, and that it was completely different from everything we were seeing out of DC. Um, so yeah, so that first round of interviews was the opposite of my John Huntsman experience in 2012, but we can, that's a story oh, for another no, day. No, um, no, 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 I need to hear about that. I just know it was the same. I mean, God love him. Um, he, his heart is in the right place and we were very aligned policy wise, but I thought he was my Pete, right. When I went to work for him in the tw- early 2011 primary and, you know, cause I liked him on paper. I liked, I liked his, you know, his policy positions. He seemed like a rising, you know, sort of younger star in the party, the kind of change the Republican Party needed, you know, believed in climate change and supported civil unions when that was a thing, um, you know, kind of before Obama had come out for gay marriage. And um, and then I went and met him and we did our first round of interviews. And it was like the, just the total opposite of the Pete experience. It was overconfident, but didn't have it, um, you know, very rambly, like wasn't lit, wasn't um, you know, wasn't able to, to sort of hit the points, um, you know, projected confidence, is the wrong word, kind of projected, um, like he knew it all, but like was deeply insecure about his answers. You know, you can just sense that in the way, the opposite of the way that you could sense that Pete was going to turn into Slayer Pete on Fox news. Um, you know, I could sense that, that Huntsman was never going to turn into Slayer John on, um, on CNN, you know? Um, well, it's a good lesson, you know, never meet your heroes and just try to meet, um, a mayor of a midsize Rust Belt town and then you'll be set. Yeah, literally never meet your heroes. Okay, I want to move on to present day, but I, I have one more Pete question that I think yeah. I'm dying to know about. I don't know if people are, but just again, take us back to those early days. So you you've already said the F word, I think, seven times in our first 12 minutes of this podcast. Uh, you know, you're hard edged New York. Pete is does Pete cuss? I don't I don't know. You don't need to answer that if you don't want to, but it doesn't seem like he does. He, he, cuss, he, he cusses. He cusses on camera and it's hard to kind of imagine that, but 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 you guys are opposites, right? So so when you were first in those early kind of sessions, you know, and you're you know talking at hyperspeed and you know talking about crushing the opposition or whatever it was you were saying, and like like old sweet Pete and Chaston had to like had to look at you with some like like you were kind of like an alien, right? I mean, how did it work in those early days? Like there just was there just is such a drastic. Um, you know, difference in, in your, your persona and, and that, theirs. Um, yes. Yeah. Pete, Pete and I on paper are, are probably <laughs> pretty different. Temp, you know, temperamentally probably a bit different, but the thing that I've found um, in politics, like the sort of magic formula is when you sort of have this yin yang thing, you know, um, when you, um, can balance uh, each other out when, um, you know, you can have someone who's a little louder, someone who's a little quieter. And I think having a team, the best campaign teams I've worked on are campaign teams where you have a balance of personalities, a balance of perspectives, a balance of um, backgrounds, a balance of diversity, all of that, right? If we yeah. were just working with someone who had the same demeanor as him, the same background, all of that, then, you know, it, it, he needed someone sort of to push him out of his natural habitat. Right. And I maybe needed someone who could also 
sort of rein me in and put me in what should be a natural habitat, right? Maybe put me in a little bit of a cage. Um, (laughs) But but the, the chemistry that you have with a candidate, even if it's the opposites, you know, it, that's what I think brings out the best in politicians is being challenged, having people around you who have a different perspective from you, having people who are you know able to push you, but where you're able to push back. And you know, it's not that I think that I just you know help make him better at his job, and you know, opened his eyes to sort of this being bolder about the media atmosphere or or what you could say or whatever, but he made me better too at my job. Right. I I think I became, you know, more thoughtful about, um, more thoughtful about issues, more thoughtful about the way I approach people. Um, you know, coming from New York, the way you talk to a lot of people is in four letter words and, um, uh, raise voices and hang up the phone. Um, but by the end of that campaign, you know, I, I felt like I, I left it with a better perspective on politics, but maybe, and not to sound completely cheesy, but like a little bit more patient of a person and, um, uh, maybe a little kinder in the process. And I think that that general chemistry that you can have in a working relationship is, is really critical. And even if you don't seem like a natural fit, it, th- that's what maybe can create the magic. Well, I'm also getting softer as we get older. So I'll be cheesy for a second too. And just say that I, I just, I am really happy that you saw what I didn't see and that you pushed him and helped push him because I, I do think it was, it just, and I, and I've written about this and talked about this, but like people did not appreciate how big of a deal like Pete's candidacy was as an openly gay man in a relationship to young gay and lesbian people throughout the country. And I just, I, I heard, and I'm sure you guys did, but I heard, Every time I wrote an article about Pete and mentioned this from, you know, a kid in Decatur, Iowa, who is like, thank you. Right. Like, like, it might, like being gay might be normal and almost hip or whatever in the big cities now. But like it is it is not something that is not the case where I live. Like I do not have the exposure to people like this. I do not see images of gay people that I can relate to. And, and I just think Pete made a big difference for that. In addition to obviously all the other, you know, policy issues that he, that he pushed forth and all the other stuff. But I, I just think that in itself was super important. And I'm so, I'm so happy that he, he did it and that you did it. So yeah. there's my, there's my cheesy moment. But, but, and, but I think that is, you know, I think that's part of what, honestly, what it was for me is, you know, I've worked on 20 campaigns and some of them have been historic in their own ways, but there was a sense you know, that this was different, that this was groundbreaking. And I just, the weight of it, the heaviness of it, you know, seeing it weigh on him, um, being at those rope lines, right. Um, Mm -hmm. and seeing, you know, whether it was a 13 year old girl, you know, come up to him and say, um, you know, I had been having suicidal thoughts and seeing you speak, you know, it's changed my life or seeing, you know, in rural Iowa, you know, 
um, an elderly man just come up and just whisper in his ear. Oh yeah, so and, many. I got so many of those and, too. And just and and tears just going down its face and saying how never in his life had he ever had the courage to come out. Um, and you know he wasn't necessarily going to come out now, but but the thought that he and his rural community could see a packed room watching Pete address and get like a standing ovation meant so much to him. And I think, you know, that also meant so much to me to be a part of that history and to um, whether or not people gave it its due, it did lend, um, you know, some heaviness and, uh, you know, historic nature to it um, that I think will stay with me for the rest of my life. And and that was one of the most important parts of it because it wasn't just a campaign. There was just such a moral, you know, social aspect to this. And that I think was really, really important. And, 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 you know, I'm incredibly proud to have been a part of that. It should stay with you. And <clears throat> I'm getting choked up. It would say, um, it was, and I'll say it, you don't have to, but it was an elite it was an elite media f- failure and a failure of just kind of elites generally to recognize how big of a de- deal it was because they live in such, in such gay bubbles and gay spaces. And like, that's great that that's, that that's true in New York and DC, but it's just, um, I think that a lot of people missed um, how big of a deal it was in other parts of the country. Um, but speaking about New York, um, I want to move on to what you're doing now. I, I, I want to preface this by saying I know nothing about New York politics. <laughs> I'm completely neutral on the New York mayor's race. It's <laughs> not a, uh, a Yang gang endorsement podcast. Um, I, I'm, uh, if I was in New York, I'd be an undecided voter. I'm not. I'm in Oakland. I've got a good mayor out here. So you are working for Yang's super PAC, uh, Andrew Yang's super PAC. But before we get into Andrew, just for other people like me who aren't up to speed, give us just a Liz pundit lay of the land. New York mayor's race. Like what's, what's, what are the, what are the little tribes at play? What are the factors? Why is Andrew Yang by all accounts winning in the polls? Uh, go pundit first and then we can talk about Andrew. Okay, sure. So, um, we are, it's seven and a half years into, um, you know, Bill de Blasio's time as mayor. Uh, and so we got the first, you know, real open race in two cycles. Um, Bill de Blasio, uh, is not a particularly popular mayor, uh, in New York. You know, his, his numbers are underwater. Um, they've gotten better from, from where they've been. Um, but you had this, before Andrew Yang got in, you had this sprawling race, um, sort of of you know insiders, you know sort of no names people who maybe had spent thirty years running for mayor, but no one who really was up to the job of like this is the second biggest job political job in the country next to being president of the United States, right? This is a an elite job, you know, when you think of the mayor of New York, you think about the crises that they have to handle, you know, think about yeah. 9-11, right? Um, think about even just how, how you recover from the financial crash, all of this. Um, 
And yet you just have this crowd of just, you know, people in another life you would think should just be maybe city council president. That's what I was going to say, running for city council. And and there's, uh, and so, you know, de Blasio has been mayor for seven and a half years. Again, as I said, not particularly popular, but part of the reason why he wasn't popular, you know, outside of, you know, his, some of his missteps was his style, right? He was someone who was uniquely dour and uniquely, um, almost like repulsed by New York City. You know, um, it, it, you saw more joy in Bill de Blasio at the Iowa State Fair uh, when he, you know, during the his ill-fated presidential campaign, where I don't think he ever pulled above one percent. Um, but more- <laughs> remind me, was that was that better or worse than how Pete pulled? I can't, I can't recall. Well, you know, the mayor of South Bend. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Pete polled one in in the sense that he won the election, um, but the caucuses. But um, but De Blasio always felt like so aloof, like he wanted to be anywhere but here. That he, you know, when um, uh, big companies or whatever were leaving the city. He would basically say to them, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, and you, what New York, when New York thrives, I think, is when it has a real champion, when it has someone who loves the city, who lives and breathes, breathes the city and loves its flaws, its strengths, its everything. And there was no one in the race who had that passion for New York, right? And as you know, elections are sort of, you go between the opposites, right? Um, And we've seen that certainly in presidential elections. But um, so it was sort of, so that's sort of the landscape before Andrew Yang gets in. Well, just explain to me then, so as not only a New York outsider, but as, you know, whenever Trumper, right? So like not, not a, not certainly a native of like democratic machine politics or liberal or democratic primaries even. I, I, I look at this and say, man, like New York is, is supposedly this liberal bastion, right? And Yang is coming in with kind of a, not, not, it's not really moderate, right? Cause it's more like heterodox kind of views, you know, sort of like a little bit, you know, some really left, some kind of center grab bag views, but kind of pro business and has some Bloomberg consultants. Like, you know, I, it is, it's interesting, right? Like what, like what does somebody like me, like what am I missing about, about that disconnect when I look at the polls and it's, and it's him. And I guess that Adams who, who you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but is the other more moderate, um, candidate just looking at among the uh, in the field, like are the are, are the first two in the last poll. Like what like what am I what are we what are we missing about that? People that you know think about the Brooklyn libs and that they would want, probably want a socialist, right? Well, which is what the you know the Brooklyn libs that you talk about. I mean, I think <laughs> more Brooklyn DSA types. They they are folks who are very loud on Twitter. You know, um, you know, maybe very loud in the online space, but not a huge part of the voting block. Um, I think the New York electorate is diverse in every way, right? It's diverse racially, it's d- diverse religiously, it's diverse economically, but it's also diverse 
Um, in terms of political views, where, yes, you know, there are Republicans here, there's not going to be a strong Republican candidate, right, in, in the general election here. Um, but within the Democratic Party, you do have socially conservative people. You do have economically conservative people. You know, obviously, New York yeah. has a huge Latino population. And I think one thing that we've and when I say Latino, I don't say that as a monolith. Right. It's right. Um, a, a, you know, huge Dominican population, huge Puerto Rican population. Um, you've got a, a, a and one thing we learned in the presidential election this last year is that you know Democrats have made a massive miscalculation um, across the board in how we view the quote unquote Latino vote, right? Just yeah. to think that they are just going to be naturally liberal. All they care about is immigration, um, and that's the only way to you know speak with Latino voters. And from from my experience, you know, I am someone who I I work for Adriano Espaillat. You know, he was the first. Um, Dominican member of, of Congress, right? I worked for uh, Eric Gonzalez. He was the first big city um, Puerto Rican DA elected. Um, so I've worked a lot in, um, you know, sort of local uh, Latino politics. And, and what you see is that um, it, 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 immigration is not, you know, in the top five issues that come up, right? Um, and right. that... Um, that there is a complete uh, diversity of views in that community, um, but it's it's very focused on much more on you know the economy, small business, on education, much more so than social issues. Right when you're in Inwood, when you're in Northern Manhattan, you're not going up there um, and you know going hard left on social issues, whether it's you know choice or um uh you know marriage equality whatever it is and even i think what we've seen too is uh, and we saw this in t 2020 um is that there's a you know big diversity of views in in the black community right uh it's right. not uh straight up and down you know liberal um in the traditional sense and that's why you see or progressive is really it's not like you know, kind of that new world. You know, it's like they're not all—they're not on board with all of the progressive priorities, right? They're liberal. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that's like a distinction, right? That's have that that like not that 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 not everybody is, you know, kind of in democratic politics. You tell me, but is 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 recognizing that, you know, that there is this. You know that, that that doesn't mean that everybody's on board with whatever the hot new progressive priority is. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I just at this point, I don't even know what the word progressive means because it's been just like so overused sure. and bastardized, but, but that's, so then you ask yourself, okay, why is Eric Adams doing so well? You know, he's a more moderate, you know, black candidate, but it speaks to sort of where, you know, most of the black community is, which is, it's not where the DSA left is. It's not where, you know, the people, I don't know, drinking craft brews and listening to Chapo Trap House <laughs> are, right? They're people who um, you know, who who want safe communities, who um Do the Chapo guys drink craft brews or do they drink like fermented 
kind of pee. I don't know. I think they might even be further down the down the hipster path than craft brews. Yes. I don't know. Thankfully, I wouldn't have the first fucking clue, and I, hope <laughs> I never do. And you know, I'm 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 glad I'm on bulwark and not chapo. I'll just uh, okay, Yang Gay. Just so give us the. This is new. You know, you went against him in the primary. It's got to be a new experience. It was just a couple of days ago that you were kind of, uh, it was pu- made public that you're going to be supporting Yang. So like, what's the Yang gang? I, I, this is like a weird, this is a foreign land to me, you know, the Yang gang community on Twitter. Just like, I didn't understand the Pete thing. I don't really know what's happening with the Yang gang. I, they, they seem to make people that I don't like mad. I like that about them. Um, but tell us what it's like to be on the Yang gang and what's, what's kind of driving it. Well, it, you know, first of all, it sounds like you just don't get a lot about politics. If you don't get Pete, if you don't get the Yang gang. <laughs> well, I ended up getting, that's fair. I ended up understanding Pete. I said at the beginning, the very first meeting, I didn't understand it. I, 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 as you know, I was, I think I was quite incisive really about Pete's campaign. If I could say so myself, yeah, I'm just patting myself on the back here. Um, the Yang gang, I guess what I meant is I understand the appeal of Ang- Andrew. What I'm saying is I've not, um, I've not dove uh, head deep into this sort of internet meme world that the Yang gang lives in. Um, You know, sort of sometimes it comes across my transom, but you know, you have now had to dive into the deep end and and like what, you know, what is, this is like a really passionate group. Like what is it that's driving that? Do you think, what is it that, that Andrew has, has uh, tapped into? Yeah. Well, so I remember the first time meeting him, it was December 20th, 2018, um, and we were in Des Moines. It was Pete, Andrew Yang, Eric Swalwell, Jeff Merkley speaking at, you know, this, uh, you know, Iowa Democratic Party Christmas holiday event, whatever, whatever it was, right? And so you think the, like, big names are going to be, and I know this sounds sad, but Jeff Markley and Eric Swalwell, right? Where the, I'm sorry. I was like, who are the, was there another person there that you didn't mention? I was going back to the list in my head. Go ahead. All right. The big, the big names. Big name Eric Swalwell. But it speaks to sort of the... The weirdness. Of I think I have more Twitter followers than uh, than than Jeff Merkley, so I don't know. I don't know um, if he's quite fit in the big name fit, but yeah. I hear what you're saying though. Okay, yeah, I know. The, the known quantities, the known quantities. I think my cats have more um, Twitter followers <laughs> than Jeff Merkley, but the so you know, and this is the first time I've ever met Andrew Yang, even never heard of him, right? And I remember he got up. So you have Swalwell. And Markley speak, and there's just not much there, right? Um, and, but then Andrew Yang got up and spoke, and I think he opened up his speech with something like, "If you want the opposite of Donald Trump, you couldn't, you know, get anything more different than an Asian an Asian guy who is good at math, right?" And so the room obviously cracks up at that. But then, you know, he just had this really forward-looking, like, insightful view on the economy and, right, on the future of the economy and not just, you know, at some macro level, but how it would impact, 
you know, communities like Iowa. He was talking about automation, how it would affect, you know, the trucking industry, how it would affect you know, the service industry, how it would affect basically every aspect of, of people's lives. And um, he, it was much more intellectual, I think, than what I was used to from a presidential candidate, but it was just much more, I don't know, sort of visionary, you know, and it, it was hard for that to come across um, in, in some of the debates. But I remember at some of the town halls where he had a longer time to speak, just sitting, um, you know, in the green room with Pete and like sort of looking at each other and, and him being like, wow, you know, that's a really fucking brilliant point. And no one's saying that. And, and that was the thing about Yang was he said he just he had a view of these things that I think was maybe a little ahead of the time, but it was visionary. It was different. Um, it attracted people. Yes, certainly there's like the a certain nerdy component that was there for it. But um, he also combined it with a style that was intriguing and it, and it was it was not just similar from Pete right where Pete would sort of go everywhere you know we made a point of um putting him on Fox News early you know connecting him with um right wing radio hosts like um Hugh Hewitt or um conservative columnists just uh one to show that he was someone who um, could have a conversation with someone outside of, you know, Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell. Um, but to show he could hold his own, but, you know, part of politics and part of running against Donald Trump is he was so polarizing, right? And think about him as president. He never went, I don't think he ever did an interview on CNN. He never did an interview on yeah. MSNBC. And I'm not saying cable news is not where it's at, right? But but I'm just using those as like the most accessible examples. He was only someone who would speak within his echo chambers. And to me, I thought it was important, um, you know, for Pete on a bunch of different levels to speak to, to different audiences. Um, but part of it was to show people that he's willing to listen to people with different viewpoints. He's willing to talk to people with different viewpoints. He will meet them where they are and he will show them the respect of going on the outlets, um, on the show this, that they listen to. This oh. honestly seems like the big insight of Yang, frankly, like to and me it, as an outsider, it, like it's not, yeah, the same thing as it's like, it's not a policy thing per se. And it's not that they, they like his policies and the UBI, you know, so there's some policy elements of it, but that, that part, a big part of it is just that like, he is demonstrating that he wants to be mayor for everybody and that he's willing he's to talk it. to everybody and all that. And it's like, it seems like it's as simple as that. Like that's like the real insight here that, uh, and that has totally been lost from most of the politicians in Washington. And that's what you saw in the presidential campaign. You know, yes, he would yeah. do Fox, but he would do, you know, um, I, I don't put Joe Rogan in the right. He's he's not right wing, but a lot of politicians, you know, wouldn't do that show. And I mean, that right. gave his campaign a massive boost, but he would do Ben Shapiro. He would do these other shows. And the way Ben Shapiro sucks. Um, no, I said to get that on the record. You can keep going. Um 
look, he's got he's got a he's got a very big audience. He's got a big audience. He does. Yeah. Um, but the way also that Yang spoke about Republicans in that race was not to say to demonize all of them, to say, you know, you're all racist, you're all misogynist, you're all going to hell. Um, it was, you know, trying to bring them back in the fold and say, you're welcome here. And I understand some of your frustrations. And you, part of the problem, you know, with the Democratic primary in 2020, I think Pete and Biden aside, Pete, Biden and Yang aside, was that there was this view um you know, that you had from some of the candidates, which was that if you are a Republican, like, go fuck yourself. I don't want your vote. I don't even view you as human. You know, I, I, um, I don't want you on my side. And, and that's just not how you win elections. And that's certainly not how you heal a divided country, right? And I think that's... Been- by the way, can I just add to this? It's also not how you get left-wing stuff accomplished. And, I, you know, like, like by both Pete, another huge key insight of the Pete campaign, that is, this is true of Yang and Biden, is they are able to support and pass really f- pretty far left policies, like like to more to the left of stuff Obama was doing and Hillary was doing and have Republicans that didn't like Obama and Hillary support them just because their, their presentation is one of saying that I want you to be part of my team, right? Like politics is, is, is sometimes as simple as that, right? Like Biden has a lot of leeway. We talked about this yesterday with Perry Bacon to like do lefty stuff and not lose you know, swing voters and never Trump voters because he is just include, including them as part of the team, right? And talking about uniting the country. And that bugs some people on left Twitter, but like it, it is actually giving him a lot more room to do lefty stuff. I think that would be true of Yang as mayor too. Yeah, but think about, you know, at the beginning of that primary when Democrats just, when, and when I say Democrats, I mean just, you know, some of the most annoying voices on cable news and on Twitter, you know, mocking and, and vilifying um, Biden for their right. talk about bipartisanship. Right. And, and, you know, who's laughing now guys. <laughs> um, and and it, it goes to show that, that we need to somehow that certainly you know, the Republican Party has its issues of its own. We could spend three hours on that. But it, it speaks to the fact that, you know, we maybe need to listen to more normal people, to normie voices, to people who aren't online all day, who aren't, you know, just... Uh, speaking, yeah. speaking of normie voices, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I want because I just want to keep moving to these other things, and this is right on was the next thing I was going to ask you. So you worked for Terry McAuliffe in his last yeah. run for governor. Um uh, here's again another one. So I wrote about the Virginia governor's race recently and how even the normie Virginia Republicans, quote unquote normie, I'm saying that in the sarcastic way now, like the business guys like Pete Snyder and and Glenn Youngkin are like basically running as pro-coup Trumpists, right? Like, or at least maybe not pro-coup, but like support the big lie. You know, you know, there's all this voter fraud. I love Donald Trump. And they're, they're like the most moderate candidates in the race. Uh, you know, this... Everybody kept telling me on Twitter that this was going to happen to the Democratic Party too, right? That like that the far left was taking over the Democratic Party in the same way that these crazies like Amanda Chase in Virginia are taking over the Republican Party. And 
here's Joe Biden winning the presidential nominee. Here's Andrew Yang winning the mayor's race. And here's Terry McAuliffe. I saw a poll yesterday. He's at 42%. He's like a corporatist neoliberal. <laughs> and he's crushing everybody in, in the Democratic governor's race. So isn't, you know, you know, Terry, isn't that another um, sort of point in, in this, you know, to, uh, that, that sort of supports your thesis here? Well, I, I reject the use of terms corporatist. <laughs> because I think two words. To Terry, I mean, hold on. If there is ever a corporatist Democrat, it would be Terry McAuliffe. I mean, he loves his big corporate pals. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. I love corporations. God, corporations are people, my friend. Terry McAuliffe probably gave him a, a thumbs up when he said that. If, if, but if you ask anyone on the street, what does neoliberal mean? Like, they can't explain it. So, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It. Like, it, it's, it's a great buzzword. You should go go out to a bar in Greenpoint and drink a craft brew and use that word. You could probably pick up some chicks um, <laughs> while you're doing it. And that was a joke. Some gays. Oh, right. I know. I, I said that. Um, on <laughs> but, but why is again, um, because where most people are, where most voters are is not uh what you see on cable news. It's not what you see on Twitter. And I feel like sometimes that um, the modern news industry, you know, social media, it has created this sort of false perception of politics, right? Which is uh, you're either on the far left or you're on the far right. Most people are somewhere in the middle of all of that. You know, Um, they don't want endless conflict. Um, They don't hold these completely, um, rigid ideological views um, that you know put them at the edges of the party. They just want people who can get things done. Um, they want uh, people who are uh, enthusiastic leaders. You know that, that's one thing I think you know Yang has for him is he understands that what New York needs right is is not just a mayor but sort of like a spiritual moral leader, a cheerleader to bring us out of COVID. And the one, the biggest thing I learned working for Terry in 2009, he didn't win that election. Right. But, um, you know, people always said, oh, he's too fun or he's not serious enough. You know, he's the macker. Um, he's got this big personality, but is he actually serious? And, um, you know, then he runs in 2013, he wins, you know, the primary, he wins the general, he becomes governor and he was a damn good governor. You know, he got a lot of shit done and he got a lot of serious shit done, you know, um, in terms of what he was able to do in terms of civil rights, in terms of expanding voting rights, right? He went to the mats on an issue and showed more grit and more metal than, you know, 40 than any other governor that at the time would have shown. And he was recognized for that. Um, and so people, but what, part of why he was successful was because, yes, he was a little bit dogged, right? He was a little bit annoying, right? He's that guy who's going to keep calling you. Um, he's, but he was fun. He brought people along with him. He didn't demonize his Republican opponents, even the leaders of the the House and the Senate who generally opposed him. You know, 
Terry had a keg installed, right, in the in in, in the house that Thomas Jefferson built, um, and they were. He going, did really. And they, I love Terry. I'm sorry. I just I I'm so, I love Terry McAuliffe. I I know this is like as a former Republican for him to be a Clintonite. Like this would have been sacrilege to me ten years ago. But I just love Terry McAuliffe. That's amazing. I didn't know that. But they loved, but it made it fun for them to be around him. Right. And even if they didn't agree on everything, they could agree that they liked him and that he listened to them and that, you know, they could, you know, have a few beers with him, you know, get a buzz on and and but not leave um, the conversations feeling like they were the enemy or that they hadn't been listened to or that they were being demonized. And that's the thing I think is makes, you know, good politicians, good political practitioners are people who understand that you need to um, bring people along with you, people who don't agree with you, and not just treat anyone who disagrees with you on a single issue as if they are the enemy. Um, And Uh, they are someone that you just need to crush. Man, you you've gotten so soft. You lo- used to love crushing people. Um, okay, quick, uh, uh, quick, just little, just raw politics here. So, so Macker wins in a blowout. I think both the, the primary and the general. You can chime in on that if you disagree. But in looking to twenty twenty two, how do you think the Democrats are situated in the House and the Senate? And if Gary Peters or Sean Patrick Maloney called you after this podcast and said, "Give me, give me one piece of advice for how we can not let insurrectionist Kevin McCarthy take the House back." Um, or Mitch McConnell take the Senate back. What, what's your What's your advice to Democrats? Well, how do you How do you assess the landscape right now? And what's your advice to House and Senate Republicans Democrats? Um, my advice would be to hyper localize the races. Um, you know, not uh, not let them. You know, we know the trends of of midterm elections after uh, that they swing toward the opposite party. Right. Um, And that is always my fear. We certainly, certainly, certainly saw that in 2010 um, where you just had this massive tidal wave, right. After, um, you know, Barack Obama had won in, in 2008. And I mean, 2014, my God, that was also a bloodbath. Um, and part of the reason why those elections were bloodbaths is, yeah, you had the rise of the Tea Party, all that. But the Republicans were really successful in nationalizing these races um, and sort of, you know, making it all, you know, tying everyone to um, President Obama or Nancy Pelosi or whatever the hot button issue of the day was in, in Washington, Obamacare. Um but what we saw in 2018 when um, Democrats won and won in very unexpected races is that they won not by running these you know, hyperventilating anti-Trump ads, but by sort of putting out, one, focusing on local issues, two, putting out just affirmative messages about uh, positive messages about the things people really care about, right, which is economic concerns, you know, healthcare costs, um, and, 
the third thing would be whatever is, you know, sort of relevant to the community. I think the more that Democrats can sort of be on the ground, um, be where people are talking about those issues, sort of rejecting, you know, sort of, uh, you know, some of the, um, the most polarizing parts of the democratic elements of the democratic national party, um, yeah. is best. And, and cause we see the playbook that Republicans are going to do, right. We see, and I'm glad that you're a former Republican because I mean, your party is being taken after having been a future former. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Hold on. I know where you're about to go with this. So I'm going to interrupt anyway, because I want, I I've had, we've had, I just have, we've had 40 minutes already, um, of Liz, Liz, the uniter, you know, soft Liz, and, and I want killer Liz back for a second. So you're about to say what you've seen the Republican Party going. We're looking at 2022. You're, you worked did some work in Ohio. We've got these clowns like Josh Mandel and, and you know, and um, uh, uh, Jane. T- yeah, I, I, just I'm just soft. just riff on these. Just riff on these I, lunatics I'm for us soft. for a second. I'm soft. And you call Josh Mandel a clown? I mean, he's a lunatic. He, yeah, he's I gone mean, crazy. He's a stone cold sociopath, right? Um, you know, he used to be normal, right? Like this is what, am I crazy? Was I the one that was blind? Was this another thing I got wrong? Like when he was treasurer, he was just like Mitt Romney, right? Yeah. Like did did was there was this sort of sociopathic like hatred of brown people there just underneath the it underneath was. the pleated khakis the whole time? It was. Oh man. It's like, it's like, finally, like you like took the red pill, man. Um, <laughs> the blue pill. I took the blue, blue pill. pill. Okay, whatever. I, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. But um, yeah, because I remember in, in 2010, I was working for, you know, the governor of, of Ohio, Ted Strickland, you know, and it was this huge wave year and everyone around him is in all the other states losing by a gazillion points. And Ted kept that race to two point to 2.0% on the dot. Right. Um, And it was seen, it was named as I don't, whatever consolation prizes says as one of the best (laughs) campaigns of the year, you know, doesn't, that doesn't mean much when you lose. The biggest loser, I think is what they call that. Um, but, um, I, but I remember Mandel was on, that was the first time Mandel was running for statewide election and he was running against, um, the incumbent state treasurer who was, um, uh, you know, who's a black guy and he did all these ads like tying, um, about how the guy had an advisor, who was Muslim and went to a mosque and this, that, and he was doing that race baiting. Back That's an important the thing in a treasurer's race. You wouldn't want a tr- your state treasurer to have a friend who went to a mosque. Right. That's, that's a pretty key issue for the, for that job. But I remember <laughs> even in 2010 where there's a lot of like ugly stuff going on in campaigns in Ohio, that stood out to a lot of people as, as just like, really below the belt. It was race baiting. Um, it was, it, it, you know, it, it was just, it was, it was just a little disgusting. It was distasteful seeing him win was like, you know, it was whatever the opposite of a moral victory was. And, you know, then you see him go on and run against, you know, share it and, uh, you know, get spanked. And then, 
try to run against Sherrod again, drop out. And now he's running as like, if, if you morphed the worst parts of, um, of like, you know, Donald Trump, um, Josh Hawley, Pat Buchanan. Um, I, 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 I'm trying to think of who the worst figures in your party are, but, but basically that, um, you know, and he's background. It's a long list these days. Yeah. Background wise, you wouldn't necessarily think he would be that, but it's like, um, uh, there has been such a dumbing down of the Republican Party and the um, you know Republican discourse that I think should be very embarrassing to people, right? You know, you had senators like Voinovich, uh, right, in Ohio. There's no embarrassment anymore. And 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 you had senators in in Missouri, right? Like, not a huge fan of him, but like Danforth, who at least um, I don't know, it had a modicum of decency and intellectual heft to him. And now there's a good chance. And now you got Holly there. And now there's speaking of stone cold sociopaths. <laughs> now Eric Greitens could join. And can you imagine, can you imagine like what those delegation meetings are going to be like with Josh Holly and Eric Greitens? Yeah. And it's like, and I guess Vicki Hartzler is considering running against her and she would be like, the moderate candidate in the race, and she positioned herself as the Missouri Bachman when she first ran for House. I you know, mean, I mean, like this is it. like she's like the normal one in that race because at least she hasn't, like you know, sexually assaulted anyone, um, like Eric Greitens. So, I, I you yeah, know, I, I I hear you. I, there there is a re- noticeable difference. Like I've had plenty of, like. I'm not sure there's really that big of a difference, frankly, between Roy Blunt and Eric Greitens. I guess, you know, I guess Eric Greitens is a bad man and Roy Blunt is a good man, but Roy Blunt just went along with all the bad things. So at this point, it was kind of like a distinction without a difference. Right. But yeah. but but going back to the Voinovich and Danforth era, I, like there is there is absolutely it's it's a it's a real degradation. And like the people who were under the impression that like Trump was this sort of outlier. Um, you know, there, there's kind of a divide among us and ever Trumpers among those who I like, thought Trump was an outlier and it's like, he's a uniquely bad orange man, you know, versus the fact that, that it's a sign of a, of an entirely corrupt tree. It's like, obviously the latter at this point. I mean, like there's, there's, there is not any, none of these races from the Virginia governor's race to the Missouri Senate race, the Ohio Senate race to me seem to have anyone that is acting any more you know, that, that wants to dial down the temperature and turn, you know, to, to pivot back towards the center to do the kinds of things you are advising Pete and Yang to do on the left, right? Like there's nobody on the right that's doing that saying, you know, we shouldn't really be demonizing the left. Right. <laughs> like, right. There's not a single candidate saying that in any race, any level. And, and you just see the rot and, you know, sir, and there is outsized attention sometimes, you spent on, you know, some of the uh, members of the House, you know, on the Democratic side. Um, and so I don't want to, you know, show that outsized attention to some of the folks on, on the right. But you do have these Congress people who recently elected and it's like, um, you know, people who did embrace these like dangerous conspiracy theories, people who sort of make a point of like, you know, always I don't know, packing guns, I guess, because it, I don't know, makes it seem <laughs> tough or something like that. But like, but when they speak, 
They say nothing of substance. There is, there is like literally nothing there except this idea that like of owning the libs and like, fuck your feelings. And there's, um, and I would just, and, and I know that John Boehner's out with this new book and, and he, he fuck goes, him. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, Charlie. I've just, Charlie wants to have him on the podcast. So I hope he doesn't listen this long in this podcast, but, but I just can't. Are you kidding? He voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, he did. And you know what? He can say, oh, well, you know, I wasn't prepared for this 2010, you know, crowd of these like Looney Tunes getting elected. And it's like, well, I, I, I didn't see him try to do anything to stop it. I didn't see him really try to do anything to rein it in. You know, I, I like the fact that he, cusses that he you know drinks heavily that he you know smokes and that he doesn't like ted cruz that he said like you know i think the only thing that unites americans of all um political religious affiliations is that you know ted cruz is a pox on humanity but like beyond that you know yeah i don't think that we need to be you know, lectured by John Boehner on anything. I, I do think though that like, you know, if you had him on the pod, he, that's a guy that probably has some dirt, you know, put it, that's you know, true. give him a nice bottle of red beforehand <laughs> and, and just, and just get some of that dirt because that's I, true. I, I bet he, you know, give him a pack of Marlboros, uh, a nice bottle of red and you can probably get some good stuff out of him. And I hope he comes on. I, my point is, like, I, you know, uh, I'm just not impressed. Just speaking for myself, and and I and I get annoyed by how gullible the lefty media uh, is, and like, you know, quoting his book and doing his book promotion for him when like he voted for Donald Trump in 2020. Like, okay, I voted for Donald Trump in 2016 was really bad. Okay, but but in, he watched him for four years. He watched all of the heinous stuff. We don't need to list it all. Everybody here knows it all. And then said, uh, yeah, I'm going for that guy over Joe Biden, over kind of inoffensive center-left Joe Biden. So anyway, uh, enough of, of, of Boehner. Um, I have one heavy – go ahead. I have one heavy topic before we leave. So if you have any other any other rants, ang, ang, you know, sort of any, any you know, quick five. Can I say one thing, though, just about the Boehner thing? Yeah. Is um, – to me, what it highlights is like this this sort of thirst for like anyone who seems vaguely normal as a Republican <laughs> anymore, right? And we've seen that with sort of the rehab and the resurgence of um, George W. Bush, right? Even in sort of democratic circles. I mean, I'm sure you, you know, have a prayer candle with him and, you know, a signed portrait of <laughs> in your apartment. But, um, but keep in mind, like, you know, Biden just announced two days ago that 20 years after the fact, we're finally getting out of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, to me, you know, one of the reasons why I really got involved and passionate about politics was because of what I saw as the atrocity of the Bush presidency. And it was on a policy level though, you know, it wasn't that he was going out, you know, and, 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 and I can give him some wins here, right? Like 
I think how he handled the aftermath of 9-11 with the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, it was a tragedy. It was an abomination. I think it, it screwed over a generation. Um, it led to, uh, you know, untold losses in life, you know, both here and abroad, whatever. I could, I could go on that liberal rant forever. Um, but, you know, you also remember that in the days after 9-11, he went to a mosque and, and he said, our war is not with Islam. You know, this is not a war with Muslim people. We cannot have Americans turning, you know, against our Muslim, our Muslim brothers and sisters, right? This is a war mm-hmm. against extremists. And you could never in a million years imagine Donald Trump doing that, right? Whenever anything happened, he was- Or a- any one of these mini Trumps, any by the them. way. Any of them. None of them. Any of them. And so, you know- I don't have many nice things to say about him, but like the fact that he did show, uh, you know, a modicum of decency and, and in that moment, that leadership of being willing to do that, I think was, was really important because we were seeing this rash of, you know, anti-Muslim um, violence across the country, you know, people going into, um, you know, stores and just, you know, shooting shooting, killing people, you know, behind the register for no, and people who weren't even Muslim, but people just looked Muslim and, but for no reason except because of nine 11. And it was really important for Bush to go out and to say, you know, stop this. We are not at war with, you know, with, with these people. Whereas Donald Trump, you know, is sitting there, you know, eating a Big Mac, watching these people just like storm the Capitol and like doing nothing, not even lifting a finger. His vice president's in there. And, um, uh, you know, he stoked the flames of that. He stoked the flames of hate and division. And um, so that is why I think people are willing to give maybe more of a pass to a John Boehner give more of a pass to George W. Bush, because even if they were cynical, even if they had bad politics, even if they were really destructive for the country, in my view, you know, they weren't fucking psychopaths, right? <laughs> I like that Big Mac dig. You still got it, Liz. You haven't gone totally soft. Mm-hmm. Um, before I get to our, our last, my last topic, I just uh, two fact checks here, um, one on me and one on you. Uh, uh, Jeff Merkley does have more Twitter followers than me, actually, so that was Wait, a mistake. Uh, I apologize to Jeff Merkley. It's 500,000. Uh, there's there's this sort of groundswell of Jeff Merkley popularity out there that that's that's blind to us. Um, and uh, and I've been corrected on this before, Liz. You 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 used the word dour earlier. Apparently, it's pronounced door. No, it's which, which seems absurd to me. I know I, I, this seems absurd to me, but I, apparently, the correct pronunciation is door. I've no, received, I, me and Charlie I, talked about. I'm gonna I've received multiple check. emails. I'm going to fact check that fact check. There's, <laughs> it's, it's dour, okay? <laughs> Maybe in Long Island it's dour, uh, but apparently, it's door is the correct no, pronunciation. If, if someone said door in my presence, <laughs> I would open hand slap them in the face. <laughs> Oh, Lord. On that note, I've, I've done this for two days. I've been so grateful to everybody for tuning in. Charlie's back on Monday. Uh, but I, I would just, I would have felt awful if over two days I did not talk about at all um, the the police violence um, this week. I watched the video yesterday after after being on with Perry of Adam Toledo. And I was, I, I literally, I was literally, 
like actual John Boehner tears um, on my on my bed. I, I just you can't like the there the the just raft of all of these things coming one after another after after the, you know with the Chauvin trial with Don, Dante Wright uh, with Adam Toledo. There's no obviously magical solution to all of this, um, but I, I just am curious, you know, either from your what politi- you know from a personal hat. Uh, wearing your political hat, thinking about how, how Biden should be engaging on this, or 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 even from a New York kind of metro metro, you know how how police departments what can be done, um, uh, you know is is there any way that we can just slow the carnage on all of this because it's just absolutely, or it's just unbelievable that this continues to happen um, and that it's it's happening mostly to to black and brown young men. Yeah, and. It- you know, this is a moment and, and this is a sort of issue where you do really appreciate having, you know, someone like Joe Biden in the Oval yeah. Office, right? Because he is a um, uh, serious, sober, but like a deeply empathetic person, right? He, um, you know, he has endured a lot of loss in his life and a lot of pain. And I think he can, um, he feels a pain that, you know, people across this country feel. And, you know, I see it, you know, with, with, you know, with my black colleagues and black friends, you know, just how this sort of weighs on your psyche, just the videos day after day after day of seeing this, right. Where clearly um, there is less value put on um, black lives and white lives. Right. You know, the reality is if you and I, if you or I were caught in, you know, that alley, the outcome probably would have been very different. Um, and the, the issue is this, is the president can set the tone, but, you know, he can't set the policies for individual, individual police departments. Um, and this is an issue where sort of going back to what I was saying earlier is like, we gotta, you know, this is something where people really do have to work together. And in New York, we have seen like a very toxic sort of atmosphere develop, right? Where it's, um, you know, the police unions have gone really, really, really far to the right Um, to to the point where, you know, they're out of touch with their membership, but where they are um, not listening, you know, to, to the community, right? Not listening to people there. And, and as a result, like, not doing the best job of policing and there is a need for for there is a need for good policing there is a a need for public safety right we've seen this massive Mm -hmm. spike in shootings um in new york over the last year and again they are largely in community of communities of color you know it's not in the west village where i live um and so there is a need for good cops for good police officers. And I think it starts with, there's no easy answer, but, you know, changing the culture of policing, increasing the dialogue between, um, you know, police and community. And, you know, I know it sounds like a buzzword, something that you say forever. um, But 
also, you know, having a mayor who's willing, I think, to show a little bit of a backbone on this, right, and to show some leadership. And that was a big, that's been a big issue in New York, right, is that de Blasio, lefty, whatever, was just absolutely terrified of of dealing with the police, NYPD, dealing with police unions, dealing with their leaks, dealing with all of that. And that's where I could see, you know, someone like um, Yang coming in and try to just bring some reason. They, You need someone who can stand up to the worst elements of this, who can say, we need some real fucking accountability when then, when there's misconduct. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, just work to, I don't know, to, to build trust. But like the reality is, is this goes so much deeper than policing. And, 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 you know, yeah. that it, it, it goes to real deep systemic issues and it's nothing that is going to be changed in the next four years. And, you know, but hopefully, you know, we see some progress on it in our, in our lifetimes, but, uh, I mean, it goes to just the amount of guns. I'm working on something about this right now. It's just, it's just, there's just the sheer amount of guns. And you just look at the Adam Toledo situation and, you know, like there's just no reason for in a different world, in a different universe where this guy isn't in Chicago, where there's all these shootings, you know, and if if he's in London, like he's not worried that this 13 year old kid is going to flip a 180 and start firing bullets at him, you know? Um, And so, it just never happens. It just it just doesn't happen. Like that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be still racial issues and you know and all of these other issues that you're talking about. But but yeah. that this video is just like it's like how can you even you know you you just have to start changing the culture to start minimizing this because it's just I just think about his parents and it's just unbelievable like I mean, that a 13 year old can be in this situation. Yeah, yeah, but but and then you know it's like I I was reading the other day. A 12-year-old in Brooklyn was shot and killed, right? And yeah. it doesn't necessarily make the national the national news, but um, there is, on top of everything, there is the gun issue, right? And in New York, we yeah. have, like, the toughest gun control laws of, you know, any state in the nation, basically. But there is, like, this pipeline of illegal guns coming to the city that, you know, creates all of these issues. So, you know... It's it's complicated. There are a lot of cross cutting issues, um, and I just hope um, you know there are a lot of big things coming up soon with the yeah. you know with the with the Chauvin trial with all of that, and um, you know we could be in for for rough times. But I think now more than ever, it, it and and these issues I think really highlight you know sort of what we are what is at the root of our conversation politics and what good politics is and good politics and good politicians are people who bring people together, who unite people, who, um, who put out flames rather than, you know, throw, um, gasoline on them. And I, you know, Biden, I think is a step in the right direction. I think, uh, you know, a good new mayor here could be there. It's going to take a whole new generation of people to um, do that, but it's only through like really good leadership that I think that we're going to be able to change some of these really tough issues. Thank, thank God for Joe Biden, and I agree with that. And I just my last thought on this is, by the way, we there was 
you know, people speaking out matters, right? Like there's all these things coming up and I hope that there'll be more, you know, that we can see another round of, of people peacefully out in the streets speaking, speaking out for Adam Toledo and, and, and George Floyd's life and others. And, and we saw doing our VAT last year in focus groups, actually, this was an issue that did cross across party lines. Like there were, you know, older white conservatives uh, in our focus groups were, I was surprised. I was really encouraged and surprised by this. We're, we're, we're motivated by the video that they saw of George Floyd. They were horrified by that. They, they were motivated by their kids and how passionate their kids were about this being out and, um, you know, speaking out. And so like, this can be an issue that people can speak out and rally around, uh, you know, and there's a lot of risks that, you know, then get associated with that. And then everything got, gets mucked up, um, you know, with Donald Trump throwing flames on the fire and Lafayette square and then, you know, violence in communities and, but um, but but hopefully it can be a moment for people um, first people speaking out and coming together. Liz, I, I'm just so grateful for you doing this. Um, thank you. Uh, I will see you on our text message chain. Charlie will be back on Monday, everybody, and he won't do this all over again. He'll do whatever it is that Charlie does. We'll talk to y'all later. Peace. <laughs>